This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. In this edition of the Yonkazine Brief, we primarily talk about breast cancer. Apart from skin cancers, breast cancer is the most common cancer in women in the United States. About 30% or 1 in 3 of all new cancers diagnosed in women is a form of breast cancer. The median age in which women might be diagnosed with breast cancer in the United States is about 62 years of age. And overall, the average risk of a woman here in the United States for developing breast cancer sometime during her lifetime is about 13%. This means that there is a 1 in 8 chance of a woman that she will develop breast cancer during her life. However, this also means that there is a 7 in 8 chance that a woman will never have the disease. According to recent statistics, breast cancer accounts for 7.1% of all cancers. Now, if you think that's a large number, you're right. According to the American Cancer Society, about 287,000 women will be diagnosed with a form of invasive breast cancer this year. And about 51,000 women will be diagnosed with what we call ductal carcinoma in situ, or DCIS. And in the end, According to the same statistics, about 43,000 women will die from the disease. But there is also good news. Since 2012, the mortality rate for breast cancer has been falling yearly 1.3%. And the five-year survival rate has increased to 90.6%. In this edition of the Ongis in Brief, I talk with Dr. Susanna Greer. Dr. Greer is the chief scientific officer of the V Foundation. In her role, Dr. Greer is a visionary ambassador of the V Foundation, working with the Foundation's Scientific Advisory Committee. She helps steer funding to the most promising research opportunities. And while in today's episode of the Ongezien Brief, we talk a lot about breast cancer, the V Foundation funds research for all cancer types at leading cancer centers and research facilities in the United States. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongezien Brief. The Oncuzine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncuzine, where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer diagnosis and treatment and cancer prevention. For more information on how to support this program, visit our website at Oncuzine. And if you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology, and hematology. This is the Oncozine Brief. For the latest news about cancer and cancer treatment, visit our online journal, Oncozine, at www.oncozine.com. In the studio with me is Dr. Susanna Greer. She is the Chief Scientific Officer of the V Foundation. Dr. Greer, welcome to the Oncozine Brief. Before we talk about the V Foundation, tell me a little bit about yourself, about your work in cancer, and how you got here. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Hufflin, for having me. I'm excited to be here. I've been involved in cancer research for over two decades now. The V Foundation, just I know we'll loop back to it, but it is headquartered in just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. And I work remotely in Atlanta. I'm there often, but I did focus my postdoctoral fellowship was in at the Leinberger Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of North Carolina. So um, 
that it feels like home to me to be back at the V after all these years. But my my journey through cancer research, I started my PhD is in microbiology and immunology, and I focused on understanding B cells and thinking about what how do you get information from the outside of a B cell to the inside? I thought a lot about signal transduction. I was at the Wallace Tumor Institute at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And so I was surrounded by individuals who were thinking about cancer and talking about cancer in seminars all the time. I, I think that's what happens to a lot of grad students and postdocs is you're just surrounded by the complexities of cancer and want to know more. So when I began thinking about that postdoc, I had spent my entire PhD focused on how do you get information from the outside of a B cell to the inside, but I threw away the nucleus. So I wanted to think in my postdoctoral studies about what happens uh, in the nucleus that's so critical in the processes involved in cancer. And at the time, we were just starting to understand ubiquitination, sumulation, all these modifications that could happen on and near DNA. And so I would say my, my real investment in cancer began at Lineberger at the University of North Carolina and Dr. Jenny Ting's lab, where I was a fellow. And we were the first to show uh, ubiquitination of a, a promoter complex. I studied the major histocompatibility class two complex, and we were just starting to understand that tumor cells often um, do the opposite of what happens in autoimmune disease. They suppress all of these signals that that show the immune system that a tumor is present. And it turned out that ubiquitination and other modifications on the class two promoter were really important in that process. So that started my career in cancer research. I then um, ran my own lab at the at Georgia State University, um, where I studied how the immune system uses um, modifications to DNA to uh, either find tumors in those of us who are fortunate enough to not have a cancer diagnosis. We know that tumors are being eliminated all the time. And then what happens to dysregulate that process in individuals who have a cancer diagnosis? So I, I very much enjoyed being a professor, training grad students and postdoctoral fellows, but about um, 12 years in, I had gone through multiple rounds of PhD students and the American Cancer Society is based in Atlanta, where I, I was working as a professor. I was tenured, funded. I, I, I loved being a PI, but I also knew that there might be opportunities to have a bigger impact in cancer in other ways. And the American Cancer Society recruited me um, to be a director of clinical cancer research. I, I had reviewed for the American Cancer Society. I'd been funded by them. And I worked there as, uh, and eventually ended up as a, a senior director overseeing the clinical cancer research um, portfolio at the American Cancer Society, a wonderful place, and, and they do absolutely wonderful work. And the V Foundation um, looked for me this time last year. They were ready to hire their first chief scientific officer, and the, the V Foundation job was absolutely a dream position. Um, we'll talk more about the V Foundation, but my focus at the American Cancer Society had been on helping young investigators to really launch their careers. And that, that is what the V Foundation does. And that's all we do. Um, and so this has truly been a, a dream transition for me. Right. So when you look back on your own situation, your own career, 
and you look at that of a young and upcoming oncologist, what do you think is a good piece of advice, a good suggestion? What I mean is a young upcoming oncologist may have a wonderful suggestion, right? They may think that they want to change the world. They may think that this particular piece of research is exciting. And, and I have to admit, research often takes you to very interesting and new and untried places, right? So before we're going to talk about the things that you do with the V Foundation, what do you want those passionate, those young and upcoming oncologists or hematologists to know in their zeal to go somewhere, in their zeal to try to find a better treatment option or a new diagnostic tool? It's a wonderful question. And is it research just a, it's an absolutely incredible field. The, the first thing I would say is that there has never been a better time to be in cancer research, to be full of ideas and motivation and innovation because the, the resources are unprecedented now. Our ability to communicate across discipline has evolved substantially since I was trained. So, and our ability to be impactful to patients, whether you are a in basic science, translational or clinical research, absolutely phenomenal. So I, the first thing I would say is don't be afraid to fail and, and really stretch yourself. Um, when, when I was doing my own research and we were just starting to think about transcriptional regulators and epigenetic modifications, we had no idea that in you know 10 years, there'd be FDA approvals for things like EZH2 inhibitors. I mean, we, we were one of the first labs to study um, that protein. So I think just don't be afraid to fail. And also talk about what you do to anyone and everyone who will listen. Um, the best grants that I see and the best grants that I have seen for the, the decade that I've been in this place come from inter, uh, multidisciplinary teams. None of us um, knows everything. And the more that you reach across to other disciplines, if you're a cell biologist and you're talking to a physicist or if you're a physicist and you're talking to a surgeon, the better off you're going to be. And just don't let your fear of not knowing everything ever get in front of you, because I think we've reached the time and place where we've realized we need each other and we can rely on each other. But the, the most important skill that I would encourage um individuals who are still training to develop is that ability to communicate with each other and to really talk about your research in ways that folks who are outside of your discipline can truly understand it. Because once they understand it and you can work together, you can do some amazing things. Let's take a break. This is the Ongus in Brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Ongus in Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Susanna Greer. Dr. Greer is the Chief Scientific Officer of the V Foundation. In her role, Dr. Greer is a visionary ambassador of the V Foundation, working with her organization's scientific advisory committee. She helps steer funding to the most promising research opportunities. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. Each day, researchers make new discoveries that bring us closer to the moment when all cancer patients can become survivors. Some days they take small steps. Others, huge discoveries lead to giant leaps forward. This progress, both small steps and giant leaps, happens with the help of clinical trials. 
Clinical trials are a fundamental path to progress and the brightest torch researchers have to light their way towards better treatments. And if you've been diagnosed with cancer, they may be your brightest ray of hope. Clinical trials introduce new hope in addition to the current standard of care by allowing researchers to provide participants access to cutting edge and potentially life-saving treatments. So if you're interested in exploring new treatment options while helping to light the path for other patients, clinical trials may be the best choice for you. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more about clinical trials. Together, we can stand up for all of us. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. This is the Youngest in Brief. If you're just joining us in today's episode of the Youngest in Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Susanna Greer. Dr. Greer is a Chief Scientific Officer of the V Foundation. Now, how important is this interdisciplinary kind of approach? And the reason why I'm asking this is that, and it must have been maybe 10, 15 years ago, that here in Arizona at ASU, people wanted to organize a conference. And in addition to inviting the key opinion leaders in oncology and hematology and other medical professionals. They also invited people that were involved in different kinds of science. And what I mean by that, they invited somebody who was trying to predict earthquakes more accurately or the weather forecast, doing that better in a more accurate way. They were also invited people for planetary science. I don't know, different sciences were invited to actually participate in this particular conference. And It's interesting when you look at that, you may wonder, how can we learn from that? How can we learn from their science uh, in oncology and in hematology? What kind of benefit does that? Do you think that there is a benefit? Do you think it is helpful? I think that's brilliant. And I, I really love it because the thing that we've realized about cancer cells is, well, not the thing, but a thing that we've realized is that their goal is to survive and to replicate themselves. I mean, really it comes quite fundamentally down to they want to make as many copies of themselves intrinsically as they can. And then the most successful cancer cells, the ones that are the most deadly, find ways to invade other tissues and metastasize. And the processes that they use to do that are not so different than the processes that we see in all different aspects of human life and the way that we organize ourselves as cultures for survival, the way that animals organize themselves to be influential and to evolve. Um, The processes of evolution and discipline that it takes for a cancer cell to be successful are are similar processes that we see across so many different aspects of sciences and mathematics. So my answer to your question is that interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary collaboration is absolutely critical. The best ideas that I see come from multidisciplinary teams. But the one caution I would say is this shouldn't be forced. It does need to be organic. Um, You can't just show up on a mathematician's doorstep. I'm an immunologist as an immunologist and say, help me make, you know, I need an algorithm, but you can come up with really innovative ideas to solve complex problems that when you get down to it are really just about a cell trying to survive. It's basically putting people together and have them converse or talk with one another about all kinds of different things. And then maybe there is this light bulb that goes off, right? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can solve really difficult problems when you come at it from a different angle that perhaps because we get so in the weeds of what we're thinking about, we're just not seeing. Can you talk a little bit more about cancer in general? But following some very interesting news that we've recently seen about breast cancer, tell me a little bit more about developments, research in this area. And what I mean is this, when you look at ongoing research and you look at what is possible today versus maybe what is possible in the very near future, what excites you? So I think a lot about the numbers around breast cancer because of my job, and some of them are quite good, right? So if we just look back for about the past decade, we know that the mortality rate for breast cancer has been declining. So a little over 1% each year. And we know that the five-year survival rate at, during that same decade has been increasing. So it's increased to a little over 90%. So those numbers are good. And they come from all of the innovations that you just mentioned, right? Our ability to detect cancers earlier, um, targeted therapies that are becoming more and more available for breast cancer. Um, so there's some good news, and we can talk about that more in a second. But I think one of the things that continues to challenge me in breast cancer is that um, it's going to make up, uh, it looks like in 2022, a little over 7% of um, all cancer deaths. That's a big number. Um, so, and we know that there are many different types of breast cancer, so that's combining them all. And then, then there are more challenging statistics um, because for a woman right now today, she has about a 13% chance of being diagnosed with breast cancer in her lifetime. It's also a big number. And we know that those numbers will continue to decline, but also over time, the percentages of breast cancers that are aggressive, while the mortality rate um, has been increasing, the percent of women who are diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer is increasing. So breast cancer continues to be a challenge. Um, I think one of the places that I have been most surprised and I guess excited about in breast cancer is we, so many breast cancers are, have on their surface the estrogen receptor, right? And, and many are estrogen driven. And our ability to understand the complexity of estrogen and hormone signaling has changed so much in the last decade, right? I mean, estrogen is absolutely essential in breast development. It, so it, it shouldn't be that surprising to us that the breast is a fruitful place for cancers, right? Because there are, it's true across cancers, like you mentioned, that many cancers dysregulate or change the regulation of genes that are really important in development. And for the, the breast, estrogen drives a lot of transcription during three important times. One is during you know, the neonate, and then the second is during puberty, and the third is during reproductive cycles. So there are all these opportunities for estrogen to be at play and to drive cell division. That's just normal in the breast, right? It happens in every woman. Um, but that means that stem cells are always going to be active in the breast throughout um, our lives until estrogen signaling begins to deplete. And so there are all these opportunities for those processes to go wrong. So what has impressed me most over the last decade is our increased understanding of estrogen receptor signaling, right? It happens in everybody, but what is, 
what is happening that is right and what is happening that is dysregulated and how might we use that to do I think at least two things a lot better. One would be to for early um, detection of breast cancer. So what types of, for instance, RNAs might we acu- might accumulate in breast tissue um, that tends to be that looks like that's going to be a lot more important than just the um, dysregulation than just increases in gene expression itself. Right? Is the actual transcription that occurs. So, and then also what might we use to target for precision precision medicine, sorry, when we think about things like um, epigenetic modifications and changes in methylation status and acetylation status of all the genes that are downstream of that estrogen receptor pathway. That's really where I see some incredible opportunities over the next few years. I mean, there are already multiple clinical trials in this space, but I think that um, it's a beautiful example of the collaboration between basic and translational and clinical medicine that's really led us to this point. Let's take a short break and then we're back with Dr. Susanna Greer. Dr. Greer is the Chief Scientific Officer of the V Foundation. The V Foundation's mission is to fund game-changing research and all-star scientists to accelerate victory over cancer and saving lives. Sarcoma. Odds are you've never heard that word before. But for the 40 people diagnosed with sarcoma every day, it is a life-changing word. Life-changing and devastating because sarcoma is cancer. Sarcoma is a cancer of bone and soft tissue more prevalent in children than in adults. More than 6,000 people lose their lives to sarcoma each year. Treatment options for sarcoma are limited and new therapies are desperately needed. More research and increased awareness is necessary to find a cure for a cancer that you probably didn't even know existed until now. Through awareness, advocacy, and research, the Sarcoma Foundation of America is determined to help those affected by this forgotten cancer, to bring hope to the children and adults whose lives are forever changed by a word they had never heard before. Please help us in the fight to find the cure for sarcoma. For more information on sarcoma and the work of the Sarcoma Foundation of America, please go to curesarcoma.org. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Yonkazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Susanna Greer, Dr. Greer is the Chief Scientific Officer of the V Foundation. The V Foundation funds research for all cancer types at leading cancer centers and research facilities nationwide. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Yonkers in Brief. And if you look at translational medicine and a better understanding of the biology of cancer, whether this is in breast cancer or other forms of cancer, this better understanding of the biology of cancer is crucial, right? When you look back maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was a certain standard approach to the treatment of cancer. And if a particular patient walked into the clinic with a particular form of cancer, there was often a standard approach to that treatment. Today, we don't do that anymore. We look at precision medicine, right? And it may mean that a patient might get a particular drug or particular treatment option 
and we might eliminate other ways of treating these patients because there is no effect, there is no result of that. How important are these developments? I don't think you can understate how important these developments are. The standard treatment of care for breast cancer has not changed substantially over the past few decades, right? Still, many women will experience um, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, surgical procedures, radiation, and then perhaps um, a targeted therapy and or chemotherapy. Where we have to continue to move is where we can eliminate those non-targeted therapies that can be so destructive, both physically and mentally. They're just hard. They're hard to go through. So I don't, I don't think you can, we can emphasize enough as a field, as researchers, and as clinicians, our ability to decide what types of therapies will help you and, and what won't, and that we're not just throwing everything at a tumor, irregardless of the outcome, just in hopes of doing the best we can. Now, I do think that there is a, there is a concern that I have. Um, in this space is that as we get better and better with precision medicine and uh, immunotherapies are a great example of this, um, the disparities grow wider and wider, right? So we already know that African-American women have a higher mortality rate for breast cancer. They are more likely to be diagnosed late as are um, Hispanic women. Um, and I, my fear is that the racial and socioeconomic divergency and outcomes for breast cancer are only going to get larger unless we find ways to eliminate the disparities that evolve from underinsurance, um, from individuals who receive care in community hospitals and, and don't have access to phenomenal care that we see um, in comprehensive cancer centers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the list just goes on. So while there is an urgent need to continue developing precision therapies and immunotherapies for breast cancer and many cancers, at the same time, as a population, we, we really have to focus on the inability that we have right now as a nation to deliver the same treatment to everyone. When you talk about disparities, and I totally agree with you that everyone diagnosed with cancer should be able to get treatment. The interesting thing, though, is that if you look here in this country, in the United States, there are issues maybe related to insurance, underinsurance, no insurance, or it may have to do with accessibility or logistics, maybe getting patients from where they live to a hospital or clinic. There may be economic burdens, such as having to pay extra for travel, staying overnight in a hotel. Maybe there is a need for a friend or a spouse or another family member to take off from work to accompany a patient. Maybe the fact that in certain areas there are no cancer centers or clinics to treat the patient. Or maybe the inability of the patient to take off from work, simply because there is no opportunity for her to do that. And as a result, there is no treatment. There may be a host of other reasons that can impact people. Maybe they're living in low-income areas here in the United States. People 
often suffering from disparities or dealing with disparities, people from African-American descent or people from Hispanic descent. Now, the interesting thing about disparities, and I just mentioned a few things that may be causing disparities here in the United States. But now if you look at, uh, for example, you go to Europe and you look at the European situation, disparities are also happening there. They're also occurring there. And the causes of disparities there are often the same, even though insurance systems and everything else may be different. So if you look at disparities and you have to devise a plan, right? How do you solve the incredibly complex and difficult problem from your perspective, where you are, what would you do? What would you want to do? Because face it, we've been talking about disparities for an awful long time, and it doesn't seem that there is a lot of progress being made. As you said, there are many challenges. So you have to decide where's the place that we might be able to make the biggest impact most quickly. To me, the the biggest disparities are socioeconomic um, for all the reasons that you listed. And I I do think it's interesting that, as you said, the, the challenges exist in the United States and we think around our insurance underinsured But you're right, they exist in other countries as well, where perhaps there's socialized medicine. And so that levels the playing field, so to speak. But then you still have all of the financial challenges that you listed and many that you didn't, that no matter your insurance coverage, you still have to deal with caregiving, with work, with just paying for parking at the hospital can be cost prohibitive for some patients. So to me the if we if we ha- if I could only choose one place to make an impact it would be around the, the financial disparities if I was thinking um, worldwide where where might we begin. And there's one place that I think we do have the potential to make an impact with relatively little financial obligation. So as I said the V Foundation where I work is in the state of North Carolina. And about 80% of cancer patients in North Carolina receive their cancer care at community hospitals. Now, there are three NCI-designated comprehensive cancer centers in North Carolina. So to me, this is a great example of the disparity in care. Because despite the fact that there's three really wonderful places to receive care, vast majority of the population of that state is receiving their care at a community hospital. So to me, one place where we might level the playing field would be in information sharing. A lot of my colleagues who work at community hospitals are, and and some of this is due to the pandemic, but some of this was set in place um, long before the pandemic. They're overworked. They see lots of patients and don't have a lot of time for uh, extensive conversations. Um, so really finding the right clinical trial, finding um, all of that you know, new information around targeted therapies is quite difficult. So one place where I think that we could make an impact would be in how we share information, um, both throughout the United States, in our hospital networks, and also worldwide. Um, information sharing is a place where we have enormous potential and it's a completely underutilized resource to where we could make it to where the best information would be available to everyone. And I do think this is a place where the pandemic has helped us. I mean, you and I are talking today um, 
we're not in the same place at all and we're having a, a lovely conversation. And so one of the things that we've realized in medicine is that lots of information can be shared virtually. Lots of care can be done virtually, whether it is more the social aspects of medicine um, or work that can actually be done. Um, you know, we, we can now, you know, we have infusion centers that are, that are mobile just because we've realized you don't have to be in a hospital to receive all services. Um, and we can use platforms like Zoom to share information um, and to also have to, to share information with patients, but also to share information uh, with community hospitals and physicians who are practicing and seeing the most cancer patients. And then we also need more clinical trial engagement, right, from um, a variety of populations. And so that's also a way to increase clinical trial enrollment is to involve community hospitals. So I guess if I only had one magic wand and one wish I could use, it would be to elevate our, our resources of information sharing um, so that people could receive the best care no matter where they're receiving it. Now, that brings me to one of the questions that I had about clinical trials. When you look at clinical trial participations, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration here in this country, has changed their criteria, requiring more women of color, but also more children to participate in clinical trials. But while this may be very helpful, there are a number of population groups here in the United States that are very fearful of clinical trials. They may feel that a clinical trial is not real medicine and that it is an experiment and it may hurt them. So if I listen carefully to what you are recommending, you say that communication, proper communication with the right information may help uh, in that case, correct? I would say from the very beginning in a clinical trial, engaging patients in that clinical trial preparation is the most important thing that any anyone can do, right, is understanding the patient perspective. And so we are, we're getting better as a community, as an oncology community of doing that, of making sure that patients, um, patient advocates are engaged from the very beginning so that you can not only develop a trial that is appropriate, um, that doesn't ask too much from the patient, but also that has outreach mechanisms that are going to um, land with individuals that you want to recruit to your trial. I, I commend the NCI for the work that they've done. The, their ability to recruit more diverse patients or, and to, out, to have outreach to different populations, I think is commendable. Where we need to do more work are in um, pharmaceutical clinical trials. Um, so I think the, the NCI is leading the way in that space. And most of our clinical trials are done by pharma. So we, we need those same inroads to be made by other organizations. And I think that some companies are really stepping up. Other companies may not yet do that. They may not be on the same page yet. But I do believe that they understand that there is a really unmet need here. Absolutely. Let's take a break. This is the youngest in brief. If you're just joining us, in today's episode of the Ongesim Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Susanna Greer. Dr. Greer is the Chief Scientific Officer of the V Foundation. In her role, Dr. Greer is a visionary ambassador of the V Foundation. Working with her organization's Scientific Advisory Committee, she helps steer funding to the most promising research opportunities. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. Procrastination can kill. Colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in the United States among men and women combined, and it doesn't always cause symptoms. 
Fortunately, it can be prevented or found at an early stage. Have you been putting off colon cancer screening? This year, use the health benefits you're paying for to get screened for colon cancer. There are lots of screening options available that include anything from a colonoscopy, considered the gold standard of screening tools, to simple tests that can be done at home. And the chances of getting colon cancer increase with age. It's also very preventable, and when caught early, treatments are more successful. If you're 45 or older, you need to get screened. Colorectal cancer can be prevented or found early when it's more treatable. Don't put off your colorectal cancer screening any longer. Talk to your doctor today to discuss which screening test is best for you. This message is brought to you by Oncazine and Physicians Weekly. This is the Oncazine Brief with Peter Hoffland. And welcome back. In today's episode of the Oncazine Brief, I'm talking with Dr. Susanna Greer. Dr. Greer is the Chief Scientific Officer of the V Foundation. The V Foundation funds research for all cancer types at leading cancer centers and research facilities nationwide. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Oncazine Brief. It may be a little bit later in the program, but during our conversations, you were talking about the V Foundation and what you are doing with the V Foundation. Now, tell me a little bit more about what you're doing and how this might benefit patients or benefit people that are dealing with some of the issues that we're talking about. Our entire conversation was a great setup for that question because the the V Foundation for Cancer Research, we are celebrating our 30th year in 2023. We were founded in 1993 by ESPN and the um, late Jim Valvano, who was a legendary basketball coach at North Carolina State and a very beloved ESPN commentator. The V Foundation, the reason that our conversations are great set up is that the V Foundation funds outstanding research and outstanding researchers across every aspect of cancer. So we fund in all areas of cancer and we fund research across the patient journey all the way from prevention, which is where hopefully we all have the opportunity to be, to early detection and treatment and survivorship. So we have a goal at the V Foundation of victory over cancer. And, you know, we all think about that in different ways. Um, But the way the V Foundation approaches our goal is that we fund investigators who are performing research in either basic science, translational, or clinical research. Um, We fund research at designated cancer centers. So there's 71 right now in the United States, and our, our research grants are reviewed by a truly exemplary scientific advisory committee that recommends which grants will be funded. To this point, we've funded over $310 million in cancer research um, with a goal of tripling that um, in the next decade. The thing that I that I think has most resonated with our donors over the years is that we have a 100% giving pledge, which means that every dollar that is given for research goes to research. And we're able to do that um, because we have a really lovely uh, support from the from ESPN, uh, which provides our endowment and, and pays to keep the lights on. But every dollar given for research goes to research, which is really wonderful. So Jim Vilvano and ESPN made this happen. Tell me a little bit more about Jim 
and the role of ESPN. Because when you think about sports, cancer research may not be the first thing that comes to mind. So Jim Valvano was beloved by everyone that he met. He was just this individual who was larger than life. I guess one of the things that we all think about around cancer is that it just never seems, it seems to take the best from us. And Jim Valvano was an example of that. He, everyone that interacted with Jim loved him. He was a motivator. He was a coach in everything that he did. And Jim was diagnosed with cancer at a young age. He was 46 years old. And it became apparent to Jim that he was not going to survive his cancer. And his goal was to make a difference, maybe not for him, but for his kids and for anyone else so that other people could uh, survive this really terrible disease, as he put it. And ESPN, so in as he truly was in his last days of Jim's life, he made a list of individuals that he wanted to form the board of an organization um, that he would call with the support of ESPN, um, the Jim Valvano um, Foundation for Cancer Research. And after Jim's passing, the ESPN did just that, um, created an endowment, and for the past 30 years have been our biggest sponsor, our biggest supporter. And I think it just goes to show the difference that one person can make. $310 million is incredible. That's a lot of money that's been raised. And when I think about the impact that that $310 million has had on the cancer community, it absolutely blows me away. I'm so honored to be in this job at this organization. Each one of those $310 million um, went to a researcher for a grant for a new idea, an innovation, um, a technology that helped to accomplish Jim's goal of, of ending this dreaded disease. And I, I know from experience, I, I was a researcher. I know what it's like to receive those funds at a really critical time in your career where you just need to generate a little more preliminary data. You have some exciting hypotheses. And if you can just have a little bit of time, right, you can make a huge impact. And that's exactly the population the V Foundation hits. And we do fund across lots of different stages of a researcher's career, but the majority of our funds go to an award called the V Scholar. A V Scholar is an individual who has, you know, they have, they have done an amazing job. They're a graduate student, they've been a postdoc, and now they have gotten an assistant professor position at a designated cancer center. So one of the top cancer research centers in the United States, but they cannot be tenured, they cannot be promoted to associate professor, and they cannot have received a large grant from the National Institutes of Health. So they're really in that critical space of needing to prove themselves. And that's where the V Foundation funds. So that is a really unique position, the ability to fund these researchers who are working on the next steps in cancer diagnostics and treatment, potentially leading to new diagnostic tools and treatment options. Now, in the next decade, you mentioned that when you look at what the V Foundation is doing, and you mentioned that you're planning to double the amount of money you might be able to spend on research. Where are you going with this? Actually, we're planning to almost triple that amount of money. Oh, that's even better. We have big goals. We have big goals. And in fact, this year, we will be launching new grants, new grant budgets. Um, so if you ask me in 10 years, where do I see us? I don't think that we will 
bring an end to cancer. But I do think what we will do is bring an end to what I see as just the tragedy of cancer. Our goal in 10 years would be to bring cancer to a place where the cruelty is lost, where everyone, all individuals know that when they are diagnosed with cancer, they have an opportunity for, uh, as we've talked about today, precision medicine, for the best treatment, and that they have an outcome that will leave them able to live live a long life. Um, and that cancer may be something that's with them, but it doesn't mean this really horrible, cruel end. The V Foundation, we, we focus a lot because of our, our wonderful donors on pediatric cancer, which is, you know, one of, one of the toughest places. I, I, our nonprofit spends a great deal of our budget on funding pediatric cancer research. And so especially for this population, um, we would like for those outcomes to be um, in a much better spot than they are now where, where those kids and their families know that they're going to grow up and have long and happy, happy lives. So in 10 years, from the patient perspective, I would like to remove the cruelty from cancer so we all know we have the opportunity for really a great outcome, a long life ahead of us without the tough side effects from current cancer treatments. And for the cancer research community, I would like for the V Foundation to be a shining star of a place that you can turn to and know that while our grants are incredibly competitive, they're hard to get. But when you get one, it is really seen as a, a career launching opportunity um, and that we're willing to invest and, and you and take a chance on you because of the innovations, the new technologies that you're going to bring uh, to the cancer arena. With those very encouraging words, we are at the end of our program today. But it is definitely exciting to see how you with the V Foundation are helping to develop diagnostic tools that may help to find cancer earlier and that you help with better treatments with less side effects. And maybe we can't eliminate cancer yet, but it may help people who deal with cancer to live a more livable life. Dr. Susanna Greer, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for joining us in the Youngest in Brief. Absolutely. In this episode of the Youngest in Brief, I spoke with Dr. Susanna Greer. Dr. Greer is the Chief Scientific Officer of the V Foundation. In her role, Dr. Greer is a visionary ambassador of the foundation, working with the V Foundation scientific advisory committees, she helps steer funding to the most promising research opportunities. For more information about the V Foundation, please visit the organization's website at v.org. For us here at the Onkers in Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners, sponsors, and advertisers, for your ongoing support. Your support makes it possible that you can hear this program via PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via podcast and streaming media, including iTunes, Spotify, Audible, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and nearly anywhere where you can find a good podcast. For more information about supporting the Oncuisine Brief, visit our website at oncuisine at oncuisine.com. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. That is 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all, and thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief.
Oncozine Brief is a global medical educational service from the publishers of Oncozine and ADC Review, the journal of antibody drug conjugates. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from our commercial underwriters and advertisers and the listeners to this station. For more information about advertising, underwriting, and sponsoring options, visit Oncozine at www.oncozine.com forward slash podcasts. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content in this program is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice and guidance. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health. If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.